Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. We are so glad that you have worshipped with us today. This morning and last week, we've been in a a mini two-week series actually perfectly designed to lead into our growth track series. And we started it last week with a message called, Can God Use My Life? And we are talking in the book of Acts, chapter 9, and we talked about the conversion of Saul and, how, and who he was, and what roadblocks there may have potentially have been in order for Saul to become Paul and walk out the call that God had in his life. And a couple of things that we talked about, the two things, the two ideas, main ideas from last week that we talked about is our, how your past condition is not an obstacle for God. No matter what you've done and what your past has looked like, it's not an obstacle for God to use you today and moving forward. And that past also includes what five minutes ago looked like. You know, oftentimes we think of our past and think of, let me tell you a little bit of who I was when I was 25, 23, 22, 21, and I could go and go and go and talk to you all about who I was back then and how it's not who I am today. And, and while that's all real, real well and it's good, What about five minutes ago? What about an hour ago when I failed? What about this morning when I woke up with with an attitude problem and I argued with my wife or my husband? Can God still use me even though I failed this morning? And the answer to that question is your past condition is not at all an obstacle for God to use you. And then we also talked about and broke down the idea of how your present circumstances aren't an obstacle. You might find yourself in a condition in your heart where you're hurting or you have unforgiveness or in your financial situation where you're, where you're struggling to make ends meet or even in your physical body where you're unhealthy and you're trying to become healthy. Even your present circumstances are not an obstacle for God to use you the way he wants to use you. And we illustrated Paul's life that way and it was, I believe, a powerful time. And so, if you missed that message, that one and this one will both be online this, this, later this evening, and you can listen to them both in their entirety as they hopefully bless you and hopefully prepare you for what God is calling you to do. And so I shared that every time I read this story, I'm amazed at God's grace. And every time I think about my life, I'm amazed at God's grace. And I oftentimes say, if it not, hadn't, had not been for Jesus, where might I be? And that's a pretty pretty loaded question for many of us as it is for me. Where might I actually be? And the likely story for me would probably be dead somewhere today. I would not have made it to 44 years old that I've made it to without Jesus in my life. That, that was the path that I was on. That was my past circumstances that are not, God, not an obstacle. But I'm amazed by God's grace and to see him transform a person's life and even see him transform a person's life in a relatively short time. Because Saul was on a journey to kill Christians and persecute the church and destroy the church. And three days prior to arriving at his destination, he met Jesus. And in three days' time, he became the preacher of the gospel, the planter of churches, and the author of two-thirds of the New Testament. And he would author most of that New Testament while being locked up in prison. So it wasn't even like... He met Jesus and everything turned perfect. As a matter of fact, he met Jesus and everything turned upside down. And he ended up in prison 
and he still penned what we lean on for hope and for grace and for mercy and for, and, and for encouragement. And so, but, but Paul was the unmo, probably one of the most unlikely candidates to be used by God, not because of his intelligence. He actually was very intelligent. He was a Pharisee. He knew scripture. He knew the word probably more than anyone else in the area. So it wasn't based on that. It was literally based on his heart and where he was. The fact that he held the clothing of the ones who stoned Stephen and killed him for preaching the gospel. Think about that for a second. He held the clothing. He's like, these people are throwing big, heavy rocks and they can't be guarded by their cloaks and their, and their jackets and their coats or whatever they are wearing at that time. So he held them while they stoned this preacher of the gospel to death. That's who he was, yet God used him in a mighty, mighty way. So today we're going to continue this, this thought in the same, past, the same chapter, Acts chapter 9. Um, we're going to forward ourselves into, diverse, into verse 10, and we're going to be in verse number 10, through 16. I'm going to read it to you. It'll be up on the screen for you to follow along with, or you can follow in your Bible or on your device, wherever you choose. But in Acts chapter 9, verse number 10 through 16, reading out of the New Living Translation version, the Bible says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. So Paul had this journey. He was on his way to Damascus. He met Jesus. Jesus blinded him and gave him instruction on who to look for. And this is where the instruction plays out. There was this believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. And Ananias responds, yes, Lord. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. What's interesting about this is he's telling Ananias, hey, go ask for this man from Tarsus named Saul. Ananias knew full well who Saul was from Tarsus. But God's telling him, ask for this man. His name is Saul. And look what he's, and then he says, he is praying to me right now. Whew. It, it, he, Ananias already fully knew who Saul was. And he's like, God's like, Ananias, I need you to go see Saul. And, and if I'm Ananias, I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's, he's, he's coming here to kill me. And, and you want me to go to him? I'm thinking, no, nah, not today. Not today. Not my path, not my road. I, I, I'm good. I appreciate the offer of God and all, but, you know, not today. And then he says, but he's praying to me. And I'm thinking, so? I ain't trying to die today. And then he says, I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. We talk about, I'm going to interrupt this passage of scripture a few times because there's some stuff coming into my heart right now that I want to share. Um, Hopefully we get to the rest of this, but uh, we talk about how when someone does us wrong and someone hurts us or we're fearful of someone or a situation and we say, well, I, 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 I have to love them, but I ain't got to like them. Or you just go ahead and do you over there. I'm going to do me over here. Or uh, so, mm -mm, I ain't answering that call. <laughs> Done with you. That's the way we interact with people who may only talk poorly about us, or who may only gossip about us, who may only mistreat us, but they surely 
ain't coming to hang us upside down on a cross. Which is the direction Paul would be moving. Any way to stone, crucify, destroy a believer is where he was headed. And Ananias is being told by God, not only are you going to go ask for the man who's come to kill you, but you're going to lay hands on him and pray that he regains his sight. And Ananias, I'm thinking, is reading between the lines, like, oh, my man's blind. I can get some shots in. Right? He's blind. He can't see anybody right now. Let me, let me go throw a few shots. You know, you killed some of my friends. You, know, you destroyed some churches. Let me, let me, I mean, just punch him in the gut once or twice. Right? Grab a chair and smash it over his head. Anything to, because I mean, this is a man who's left nothing but destruction in his wake. And he goes, and this is Ananias. He says, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. Immediately, fear rises up in Ananias. Say, no thank you. I've heard of all the destruction that has followed him, and I'm not even trying to to see that. And then it's responded to, he says, and he is authorized, and this is, this is what's interesting. He's telling God something I think he doesn't think God knows. He says, and he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But this is what God says. Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias is having this dialogue with God, and he's saying, you know what? He is authorized to arrest me, yet you want me to go lay hands on him and pray healing. And there was only one way to heal someone. That was in the name of Jesus. It was the only way to, the only, there was no other way to heal. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. In the name of Jesus, wake up. In the name of Jesus, you can see. That was the only way to heal. And so he had to actually go to a man authorized to arrest him for speaking his name and then actually proclaim his name over his eyesight. And then on top of it, not even to talk about Saul, but Saul then would have to suffer in his life. See, I think people miss that part of the passage of Scripture. It says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. That word suffer in the original language literally means to lay down everything for me. Meaning your safety. Meaning your emotions, your, your mind, your will, your emotions. Lay it all down for me. Because as you would come to realize when you come and learn about Paul, he would be beaten, he'd be thrown in prison, he'd be every imaginable thing that he has done to others would have then been done to him. And he would even say, man, I got this, this thorn in my flesh, I got this pain that just won't go away. And God's like, that's all right, my grace is sufficient for you. And Ananias is charged with this, this process, yet 
His first response in the first three verses that I read, verse 10 through 13, and one of the continuing again in the same thought process as obstacles to keep us from following after God's will is your fear, and this is one of those blanks on your notes if you like to fill them out, but your fear is not an obstacle for God. Your fear is not an obstacle. Look at what it says. God's telling Ananias, there's a, telling Paul, that there's a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling him. And he responded, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask the man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Ananias' response in fear. But Lord, I've heard many talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. See, to Ananias, his fear was an obstacle, was a roadblock, was something that he was going to struggle to get past in order for God to use him. But yet God would still use Ananias in the midst of his fear. And they were fearful for a reason. I mean, this guy Saul killed Christians. And even at his even at his conversion, this is the kind of fear that followed Saul. Even after Saul was converted and became Paul and became the apostle who would preach and teach and plant churches and write the New Testament, even after all of that took place and even after word of that had gone all over Jerusalem, when he went into Jerusalem, Barnabas had to go with him to introduce him to others. Because they knew that there would be safety if Barnabas came. Because Barnabas had this reputation of being a man of God. To being a man of faith. Being a powerful man. And being someone that is trustworthy. And if he, so he had to go with Paul to introduce him to others. Just so people wouldn't be so fearful of him to hide. There's something, there's something in that for you this morning. And I don't know where you find yourself, and maybe you find yourself having trouble dealing with fear. And maybe it's surface level fear. Maybe you're one of those types that is able to make a mountain out of a molehill. Something that happens and takes place just becomes the most overly and overwhelmingly dramatic thing in your life. And, and it's the end of the world as you know it type problem. And it really was something simple or small. Or maybe if you're younger... Maybe it's an exam at coming up at school that you're sure you'll fail. And you're going to have to repeat it or take it again or it's going to ruin your grade. And we become fearful of even a test. Or maybe you've, you've, you've got, you get to the end of the month and you feel like you've missed paying a bill. There's a, there's a bill I didn't pay and you become fearful that your lights are going to get cut off or the water will stop running. Or the older we get, and I've done this a time or two, uh, look and inspect my skin and say, that's a new freckle. The older I get, I learn the more spots I get, which is kind of weird, but I'm like, that's new. I wonder if that's okay. I think that's cancer. Well, you know, it's that, that mindset that says, I don't know what that is. It's got to be cancer. I got to be dying. You laugh, but this is what we do. We become fearful of every little thing that happens. 
And so here's what's interesting. This fear takes us to a place called worry. And worry separates us from Jesus. Because worry is sin. Ooh. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you really just take it to that level? Yes, I took it to that level. Because worry is saying, I don't trust you, Jesus. And it's interesting. There are 365 references in scripture using the words, fear not. One for every day that you will walk the earth this year. Fear not. 365 references. I wonder if that's coincidental. That every single day you can read a new passage of scripture that encourages, not, encourages you not to be fearful. And as we look through the word, we're going to find examples of people who have overcome fear to do these great things for God. And my favorite one to follow when it comes to fear is this man named Gideon. Gideon is interesting. You want to read his story? Open up your Bible. Go to Judges chapter 6. Read his story. It's, 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 it's one of strength and power, but also one of, wow, this man was fearful. He was called to rescue the Israelites. He was called to be their rescuer. He's called to be their savior, not like Jesus' savior, but to save them from their situation. And he was hiding in a wine press. Like, no, you're, you chose the wrong one, God. I'm too scared for this. I'm hiding away. You can look at that and see in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. And he would continually, I've been guilty of this one. And maybe I'm the only, I'm, hope I'm, not, I'm hopefully not the only one I'm being too transparent here, but I've been guilty of this one. He would then continually petition God for signs that he was actually called because he was scared. And I'm guilty of this one. So there was a moment he petitioned, he continually petitioned God and said, if, if, if this is really you, God, and what you've called me to do, then you'll do this. And one of the things was that he laid out a, a blanket and said that there'll be nothing on this blanket, but the rest of the area be consumed. And so that, that happened specifically. And then just the last and final one was he did the same exact thing again. He laid out this blanket, yet he said it. said, how about just consume this blanket, but not the rest of the area? He's testing God in a very, very foolish way. But God just continually would respond to him in the way that he was asking. Now, I did the same thing when we planted Relevant Faith Church before it ever came, when it was settled into my, when it was put into my heart, but not settled in my heart, I asked God, well, God, if this is really you, then you'll do this. And he did that. And I said, well, God, if this is, if this is really you, then, then you'll do this. And he would do that. And finally, I was like, God, if this is really you, I mean, how many times do we do that? God, if this is really what you want me to do, because there's a fear inside of us, a stress and a worry of and it usually comes from a place where we are quite insecure. For me, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I'm not, I'm not the smartest of guys. I'm not the most elegant of speakers. I'm not, I don't have the Bible degree from the Bible colleges that everybody seemingly has to have. And I don't have any of these qualifications. And we'll get to that in a second. But like, what am I going to do? And then I come into it and I finally say, okay, yes, God, I come into a city and I come in with this vision and this plan and you're going to hear more about this next week, so I'm not going to drown you with it today, but God, you called me to do something different and unique and plant this church in a movie theater and talk about how we can be diverse. 
And we can be multi-ethnic and we can be multi-generational and we can be multicultural and we can, and we can do this. And I met with people who say, you're wasting your time, just go home. Pastors in this city would say those things. And in that moment, I'm like, I had two choices. Respond to my insecurity and my fear that I was doing something wrong or just dust my shoulders off because that person is not willing to receive me. And that's the rubber meets the road moment in our faith. There, are, there will always be moments in life when you're worried to give yourselves completely over to God. Because in some weird way, we think that if we do that, then we've lost control. And now we have to put our trust in someone we cannot see, oftentimes cannot hear. Yet you want me to let them control my life. That don't make any sense. But the truth is, we can always trust him with tomorrow. Always. Obedience, listen, does not require us to be fearless. It only asks that we have faith to follow him. Doesn't mean you don't have to be a little fearless. Then you don't have to be the most fearless person on the planet to be obedient to God. You just have to have faith enough to follow him. Matter of fact, Corey Ten Boom, who wrote, uh, was, a, was, a, was a Christian author and writer and preacher, and this is what was said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Look at, think about that. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That is just a powerful, powerful statement. Because the truth is we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We have our plan of what might take place and we plan based on what might take place. We don't actually know what will happen tomorrow. And so we've been instructed, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's problems are enough. For we have problems enough for today. Don't worry about tomorrow's problems, which is why I love, hey, don't ever be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Here's what I've come to know about God. And, and when I say this, God's never had to actually audibly tell me this. He's never had to write it in the pen in the sky for me to read. I just know that if I trust him with tomorrow, he always has my back. You know why I know that? Because one time I did it, and lo and behold, he had my back. All right, let me try that again. I did it a second time, and sure enough, he had my back. And I remember when I was just getting off into preaching, I was a junior high youth pastor, and I'd been saved all of a year. And this teenage girl... I asked her, what does that passage of scripture mean to you? And she literally said, it means that God's got my back. And I was like, you know what? That, and it has literally stuck with me 20 years now almost. That one phrase has stuck with me. God has my back. I don't have to be afraid of what is unknown because I just give it to the one who is known. So going back into last week, your past condition is not an obstacle. Your present circumstances are not an obstacle. We just talked about how your fear is not an obstacle. Matter of fact, some people come up with crazy acronyms for everything. This one is kind of, kind of pretty cool. Like fear, false evidence appearing real, F-E-A-R. 
false evidence appearing real. You look at something that's actually not real, but it appears real, so I've got to be scared of it. Somebody telling me that this isn't going to work and I'm wasting my time, that's kind of some false evidence that appeared real. So fear is not an obstacle. But here's one of the things that we're fearful about quite often, and I was personally myself as I was walking through God's call for my life, and, and I'm guessing that some of you in some way, shape, or form fear this or have feared this or will at some point in time think about this. So while your fear is not an obstacle for God, your qualifications are not an obstacle for God. Everyone out there will have an expectation and a qualification that they think you should have that you won't have. For me, first question folks would ask me, where'd you get your Bible degree from? Where'd you go to seminary? All those types of questions. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't do that. They're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Why are you preaching? I don't know. Jesus told me to preach, and so I opened my mouth. Lo and behold, something came out of it. Sometimes it was really good. Sometimes it was, what on earth is he even talking about? But I just did it because he said to do it, so I did it. And then, of course, I'm a little bit of a smart aleck from time to time. <laughs> that came from the one who's been around me the most in the last six years in the church anyway. <laughs> and I'd say, you know what? I'm reading about this man named Paul. He used to be Saul. He's on a road to Damascus. He meets this man named Jesus. Jesus blinds him. Three days later, he meets Ananias, who heals him, and he begins to preach the gospel. And I'm thinking, three days. Three days of conversion. I, I have more than that when I started preaching. The qualifications are just what man suggests that you need. God qualifies who he's chosen. He doesn't choose those that are qualified. If you need evidence of that, if you need to look at that, well, first of all, let's first look at this in verse 14 through 16 so that we can see the, the proof text for this in our passage. He says, he is authorized by the leading priests to, to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. There's Ananias' fear. Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to, make, to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings and as well as to the people of Israel. He is my chosen instrument. I have chosen him. Therefore, since I have chosen him, I have qualified him. He doesn't need Ananias. Listen up real quick. He don't need your approval, bro. Just go and do what I told you to do. I told you to go and lay hands on him. Go lay hands on him. He doesn't need your approval. He just needs your hands. There's a message right there that I could preach all day. Whew. He doesn't need our approval. He doesn't need man's approval. He just needs your hands. And if you look through scripture, all through scripture, God took the most unqualified people and used them in ways that none of us would ever choose them to be used. Hannah wanted a child so desperately, she turned to the Lord in her desperation, and God gave her a son who was destined to become a great spiritual leader to the Israelite people. Daniel was just a mere teenage boy. Folks look at teenagers and say, you're a teenager. You got no value. You can't accomplish anything. You're a kid. This man named Daniel, 
was a teenage boy when God gave him the strength to stand up against the king of Babylon, to stand up for himself, his beliefs, and say, I will not eat the king's meat because I serve God and him only. You can bring me, I mean, they tried to entice Daniel into speaking as that, that King Nebuchadnezzar was the man of all men, that he was the God to be worshipped. And he's like, uh-uh, you can bring me all the fine meat. You can bring me all that stuff. Uh-uh, I'm not eating that. I won't defile myself. You can kill me. He was a teenager. Why? Because he was yielded to God. David was another one. We've talked about him and talked about him over and over. He was so valued by his people that he wasn't even invited to the inspection table when the prophet came to look for a new king. All of his brothers, his dad brought all of his brothers along, but they left David, the ruddy one, out to tend to the sheep. Even his father looked at him and said, yeah, he's not qualified. We might as well just leave him out there. Yet he was the one who was chosen. Why? Because he was considered to be a man after God's own heart. Do you see the pattern here? If you yield yourself to God, he's choosing you, and then he will qualify you for whatever it is he's called you to do. There was this young teenage girl one time, right? Angel called to her and said, hey, you're going to get pregnant. And oh, by the way, it's going to be the savior of the world that is inside of you. A teenager. Tell me teenagers got no value. I think they have more value than most. I say that because I have three teenage kids. I spent 15 years as a youth pastor. love teenagers. But she, Mary was just this teenage girl that God appeared to and said, you're going to carry the son of the war, savior of the world, the son of God. Not even thinking about what was going to come along with that. And if you look at Paul's qualifications, let's look at his actual qualifications. You know, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he was believed to be forceful in writing, but weak in present. He was believed to be able to write real forcefully, but real weak in present. Anybody else know someone like that? Someone come and blast you hard on Facebook? But when they see you face to face, they kind of cower like, uh. Or they avoid you because they know they just said something that they're fearful that you're going to come back at them about? That was Paul. I'll write it for you, but oh, I don't want to, don't talk to me face to face. He was actually, according to 2 Corinthians eleven six, 6, he was believed to be an, as, to be unskilled as a speaker. They said he had no skills as a speaker. And then on top of it, he was sick and feeble when he spoke to the Galatian church in Galatians 4, 13 through 14. He was sick and weak and feeble. So here we have a man who was forceful in writing but weak in person, an unskilled speaker and always sick and feeble. Wrote two-thirds of what you read. Planted. If there's a church standing today, it's because he planted it long time ago. Because every church came, was birthed. In the New Testament church, was, a lot of them were birthed through Paul's ministry in cities that never had the gospel. Paul had so many hurdles to get over to be used by God, and not one of them did God ever address as a hurdle. Matter of fact, if you look back at our text, when Ananias confronted God about who Saul was, notice what God did not do. God didn't even answer his question. 
didn't even answer his question. He said, he said to him, he's authorized to, to arrest anyone. And then before that, he says, wait a minute, I heard this man. I've heard the stories about this man. They talk about the terrible things he's done. What was God's response? Go. I ain't trying to hear what you have to say right now, Ananias. Just go. I told you, go, go. Kick you out the door. He didn't even, he didn't even address Ananias' question. It's far too often we look at what others suggest we are supposed to do. And because we can't measure up, we decide to do nothing. What would this world look like if some of the giants of faith did the same thing that we do? Remember, God does not call people who are qualified. He qualifies those that he called. It's not a job interview, folks. You don't sit down and present the best, uh, best side of yourself fabricating stories on your resume to try to get a job because they're looking at this piece of paper and looking at your qualifications as to whether or not they hire you. This is, you were qualified when you said yes to Jesus. That was it. Qualification period over. Now, I don't shun education by any means. My daughter's at Bible college right now and she's going to come out. Here's what I love about that. She's going to come out of Bible college far more dangerous in the, with, with God and the things of God than I was until I was in my 30s. She's just going to be there in her 20s. Woo, I can't wait to see what happens. It's got value. I'm not shunning the education by any means. All my children will go to college in some way, shape, or form. But that's not what qualifies us to be used. God excels in taking the seemingly unqualified, unskilled, and foolish things of this world and using them. How do I know that? Because Paul wrote it. How did Paul know it? Because God did it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Instead, God chose things of this world to consider that the things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Whew. Leave that up there. Look at that. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. This is Paul's life he's preaching. He's like, look at what God did to me. The world considered me, me serving Christ foolish. Or, and now I'm powerless. Need more evidence? We've already talked about Moses many times, but God took this old man who had a speech impediment and you made him his arm. He used a young Jewish girl named Esther. We talked about her a couple weeks ago to save his people from slaughter. I already talked to you about David. He used a beggar, a beggar named Lazarus to preach a daily sermon to a rich man. That was his goal. Preach to this guy every day. He was a beggar. Chose a beggar to preach to a rich man. Were we even comprehending that? The two of them would never sit in the same circles. But it chose a beggar to preach to a rich man. God chose 12 unknown men from 12 various walks of life to set the world on fire for his glory. 
many of which people considered to be either a thief or uneducated. Matter of fact, here's the other part of that. They were all young. They were all real young. There's biblical evidence to prove that Jesus might have been the very first youth pastor. Even Jesus himself had several strikes against him. John at 841, they assumed that he was the child of an unwed mother to a Roman soldier. Do you know that? Do you all know that was a rumor about Jesus? That his daddy was a Roman soldier? John 841, read it. Others saw him as being no more than just the son of Mary and Joseph in, the very, in John 642. Most thought that there was no way God would use someone from Nazareth. Nazareth was like, let's just be real. You live up on the north side of Peoria, you look at the south side of Peoria and say there's no value. God, Jesus, God would say, <laughs> I think the most valuable things are exactly where people are looking for no value. And I stand here as a pastor and a, and a white man preaching that and teaching that and believing that to be truth. Others question the fact that he came from Galilee. Some even said that Jesus was nothing more than a tool of Satan. These are all scriptural, Mark 3.22. And even with all these marks against him, no one can deny what Jesus did when he walked this earth. It's historical fact. You cannot, decide, you cannot even deny what he did. So I said all that to say this, regardless of who you are, Regardless of where you came from, regardless of what problems you have, what personality quirks you exhibit, how odd you are, or how cool you, are, you think you are, what level your education is, or what level of acceptance you have from others, God can and God will use you if you make yourself available to him. So let me give you, I'm going to give you two things to make this practical real quick. Two things to make this practical. Worship team, you can make your way up here because I am wrapping up. Two things to make it practical. Number one, so much easier said than done, overcome your fear. Overcome your fear. This is how we overcome our fear. I'm going to give you the formula to overcoming your fear. And I promise you it's nothing new. Because the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. I'm just going to take a passage of scripture, break it down for you, and show you why and how you overcome fear. You overcome fear using Isaiah chapter 43, verse number one. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you says, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you, and I have called you by name. You are mine. Sounds all well and good. Let me, let, me, let me break it down for you in the original language so you can understand the power of what was just said to Jacob. He created you. The word that he uses in this phrase when he says it is the same word that was used in the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. He created you the way he desired for you to be. 
He did not create you to be like someone else. He created you, wired you, gifted you just the way he desires for you to be. And that creation is the same word he used when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same word. He created you with purpose and for a purpose. The heavens and the earth have purpose. The same way he created them, he created you. Then he goes on to say, he formed you. He said, oh, Israel, the one I formed is the same way that they say the potter forms the beautiful work of art from clay. It's the same way that artists carved into wood. They formed it. And what do you have to understand about that is in each one of those instances, they paid attention to every single detail. You ever watch someone, you ever watch a potter at a wheel of clay? You ever watch that? Watch him shape, watch him form that clay into what he wanted it to be? You ever watch when he does that? And then you ever watch when they look at it and it's just, it's not exactly how it was designed to be and smashes it down and does it again. You ever see that? I I would Google it. Google it and watch a video. It's it's really unique. It's really interesting because they are paying attention to every little detail, every shape, every curve. Same thing with someone who carves art into wood. They're paying attention to every tiny little detail. That's how God formed you. We're going to get in deeper into that in a couple of weeks. It's going to really hopefully change the way you see yourself. Then when he says, I ransomed you. This is, this is really powerful. I ransomed you, meaning I have redeemed you and called you my kin. That's, the, that's what it means. I have bought you, I have paid for you, and I have called you my kin. I ain't just bought you and called you my slave. I bought you and called you my kin. I called you my family. And in that, there was a responsibility that he had because you're his family. He goes on to say, I called you by name. Just so you understand, when he says, I called you, I don't know if y'all do this, but I still do this. My kids are outside. They're playing. I don't know where they are. My wife comes home. Where are the kids? I don't know. But when I need them, or right around dinner time, I go to my back window, and I yell, And he responds, coming. I called him with an out loud voice. That's what that word called means. I called you with an out out loud voice. What did I call you? I called you mine. How do you overcome fear? You realize, you realize that he created you the same way he created the heavens and earth, that he formed you and he paid attention to every single detail, that he paid for you, made you his family, and then he called you his own. That's how you overcome fear. There's no five-step program. If you open a book or get to a website that says five keys to overcoming fear, let me just tell you, throw them all away. There's four right here in Isaiah 43. That's how you overcome fear. You overcome fear by knowing who God said you were. Not who mama said you are, not who daddy says you are, not who your cousin, your auntie, your brother, your sister, or some fool that you dated one time. But who God says you are. That's number one. 
probably can quit there. But I got one more. Last one is this. You overcome your fear. Number two, you believe God has called and qualified you. First Corinthians chapter one, 27 and 28. We read part of that already. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Verse 28, God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring nothing that the world would consider important. Look at one, there's, there's one common theme in this. God chose. He chose foolish things. He chose powerless things. He chose despised things. And he chose nothing things. I don't know about you, but I've lived enough life to have been despised, to have been powerless, to have been foolish, and to have been considered nothing. I have been considered all those things at some point in time in my life, and yet I can still stand here and tell you, guess what? God chose me. You may not like me, and you may not like that God chose me, and you may not like some of the things that I say sometimes, and I can be honest with you, I don't even like some of the things that I say sometimes. But I can still stand here and say, guess what? God chose me. Not because I'm special. Matter of fact, he chose me in spite of me. God's choice of Paul was perfect. And it was amazing. He converted thousands to followers of Christ. And he taught holiness to thousands in the early church. Don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. We, sometimes people look at, Paul, look at this story and say, oh, well, Paul was a diamond in a rough. Let me tell you, Paul was no diamond in a rough. He was no diamond in a rough. Paul was, or, or, or this was just Paul discovering his untapped potential. No, this was not. This was God's power working through a desperately unqualified but willing servant. That's all it was. There was no diamond in the rough. There was no untapped potential, however people want to label it. This was God's power working through a desperately unqualified but willing servant. Not Paul and his qualifications, but God and his call. God's plan, God's mission, God's power that carried it out. Not Paul. This is God's plan, God's mission, God's power that will carry out the relevant faith church and what he wants it to be. Not Mike. Whatever that is for you, it doesn't make a difference. Some, it might be some of you right up here with a microphone in your hand preaching the gospel. It could be any host of ideas and thoughts that God may have for you. But it's all him and his power, not you and your qualifications. I'm going to ask you the same four questions this week that I asked you last week. Because it, this, is the, this is what it takes to be used by God. And I will never, never fail on this. I read recently, a friend of mine posted, who's a pastor of a church, he posted, you know what? God will show up. God's presence will move. God will do powerful things regardless of you, your life, your walk, and your sin. But if you want longevity in this life, then you have to develop this thing called character and integrity. 
Character and integrity lead to longevity, not God's presence moving. God moves whenever God wants to move. He's not a respecter of persons. He's not subject to my holiness in order for him to move. Remember what he said? He said, I'll cause a rock to cry out if no one else will, and I will beat a jackass and have him talk. Yeah, that's, oh, that's King James language. I pull it out whenever it suits my needs. Nate's laughing at me because that's how he always reads it. Somebody's going to listen to this and say, you really said that. Yes, I did. It's a donkey. Come on, let's get over it. But there are a few questions that you have to ask and you have to consider if you want God to use you. Number one, very simply, are you really saved? Are you really saved and serving the Lord? And are not good, not been baptized, not a church member, but are you truly saved? That's a question between you and God. I can't answer that question for you. Number two, are you fully surrendered? Is all of you on the altar of Jesus? Are you holding nothing back? Everything must be his. So are you saved? Are you surrendered? Are you available? Some of y'all schedule so crazy busy, you're not even available for him. And number four, are you willing to be used by Jesus? And to answer that question, you have to really say, are you willing to be despised by others as well? But that's covered under being used by Jesus because that's what happens. Even though Paul became this great and mighty person, he was despised by many. They tried to kill him as long as everyone else who preached the gospel. Because Jesus won't force you to serve him. You may, you, may wish you, you may wish you had at some point in time in your life, but he'll never force you into anything. You have to come to a place where you're willing to allow Jesus to use you. If the answer to any of those four questions was no, then today is your day. It's your, I won't even call it lucky day because I don't believe in luck. It's your God-appointed divine moment, if you will, to answer yes.